merely evolving in a bad direction. But into that uncertainty and tribulation, John receives this magnificent vision of the end of all things. This is the kindness of God, friends. As the church in every age faces tribulation, God, in Revelation 5, pulls back the curtain of history and He says, let me remind you where things are going. And He lets us see the end of all things. And what we see here in this chapter is anything but random. There is no evolution in Revelation 5. There's only providence and glory as God brings to completion all that He has intended for the church of Jesus Christ. So what I'd like us to do this morning is see three reminders from this chapter of where the church is headed. Three reminders that speak to us and tell us that things are not spiraling out of control, but instead we ought to have confidence as we face life in this world. These reminders build on one another so that the final reminder is also the application for our lives. So let's consider these three reminders together of where the church is headed. The first reminder comes in verses 1 to 5 as John gives us the setting for the passage. This is the foundation for everything else that follows and the reminder is this. History belongs to the triune God. History belongs to the triune God. Revelation chapter 5 continues the scene that began in chapter 4 where John, through the Holy Spirit, was brought into the heavenly throne room, into the very presence of God Himself. But as chapter 5 begins, the, the focus shifts from heaven's glory to what we might call a heavenly drama. Notice verse 1, chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now the big question of the chapter focuses on this scroll. What exactly does the scroll represent? There are a number of options, but the most likely background comes from the Old Testament books of Ezekiel and Daniel. In both instances, the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel see scrolls or books that contain God's judgment upon the earth. And when these judgments are read, when these judgments are unleashed, God's people will be vindicated. God's people will be saved. And friends, that's the best interpretation for the scroll here in Revelation chapter 5. The scroll represents the purposeful plan of God. The plan for judgment and salvation to be displayed on the earth. So you can think of the scroll as God's blueprint, so to speak, for what will unfold throughout history. But you'll also notice that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. What's that about? Well, the seals symbolize God's authority. In the ancient world, if you sent someone a letter, you would put your seal on that letter. You've probably seen them before in history books. They're seals made in, in wax. And when you wrote the letter, you'd seal it. And the point was the seal represented your authority as the author, your authority as the sender. To break the seal, you had to have the author's permission. Here in Revelation 5, the scroll has not one seal, not two seals, but seven seals. Seven, the number of fullness. This is a fully sealed and delivered message. This is a solemn message. It is infused entirely with the authority of God. 
And so the chapter begins with history in God's hand. Please don't miss that fact, brothers and sisters. The scroll represents the divine plan for all of time, and the scroll is located where? In the hand of Him who sits on the throne. In God's hand. History is the story written by the finger of God, as C.S. Lewis famously said. What unfolds in time does so with God's authority. But as we come to verse 2, some drama is introduced into the heavenly scene. A mighty angel asks, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Understand, friends, this is not a small question. The angel is really asking, Who is able to carry out God's plan? Who is able to stand in God's place with God's authority and bring to pass all that God has promised? Who is worthy to unleash both judgment and salvation? You see, it's not a question. This is the question of all of history. Who is worthy to do God's will and to act in His place? Then the drama deepens. Notice verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Now think about the, the beings who are present in this chapter. There are f- these four fantastic living creatures. They're not worthy to open the scroll. There's the 24 elders seated on thrones with God. They're not worthy to open the scroll. There are myriads of angels, even archangels. They're not worthy to open the scroll. That's the dilemma of verse 3. It's a real dilemma. There is no one, it seems, who can take the scroll from God's hand. And so John weeps, verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Friends, based on what John knows, that is absolutely the right response. If there is no one to open the scroll, no one to carry out the purpose of God, then the church is left to fend for herself. History is simply evolving. It's going to go where it's going to go. And the church has no confidence that she will endure. That's why John weeps. Because based on what he sees so far, God's purpose appears to be frustrated. No one can open the scroll. Everything changes though in verse 5. One of the elders directs John's attention to another person in the heavenly courtroom who John hasn't seen yet. Notice verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So the answer to the dilemma is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no need to weep, for the Messiah is worthy to carry out the plan of God. And this worthiness, friends, is captured in the titles that are ascribed to Christ in verse 5. The Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. Both of those titles come from the Old Testament and they express the Messiah's status as the royal conqueror who delivers the people of God. The Lion of the tribe of Judah comes from Genesis 49 when the patriarch Jacob on his deathbed describes his son Judah as a lion, powerful and ready to pounce. In fact, Judah will be so mighty, Jacob prophesies that the scepter will not depart from his house. You may remember that Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob's sons, but Jacob says not Reuben will be king, Judah will be king. 
The scepter will not depart from Judah. Israel's king will come from this tribe. The lion of the tribe of Judah then is a reference to kingship. It's royalty. Just as the great King David came from Judah, so also the Lord Jesus, the greater son of David, was also descended from Judah. He is the lion, the king who conquers. And that second title, the root of David, confirms this view. This title comes from Isaiah 11 that we read earlier in the service, where the Messiah is described as a branch growing from the stump of Jesse, David's father. In Isaiah's day, that promise was that even though David's line appeared weak, nothing more than a stump, one day another king would come, another branch would grow from the stump of Jesse, from the royal stump. And this king would conquer and deliver the people of God. It's the root of David, another king. So when you put those two titles together, the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, you can understand why this elder tells John to weep no more. There is one person and only one person who's worthy to take the scroll, and that someone is the king, the Lord, the Messiah, even Jesus Christ Himself. Now, we've only begun to uncover the splendor of this chapter, but even at this early point, we're able to see something of the unique glory of Jesus Christ. Remember what I told you just a moment ago about the seven seals on the scroll representing the authority of God. It was the authority of God there on the scroll in those seals. So to open the scroll, you have to share in God's status. You have to be equal to God to do what God alone can do. You have to share His position, His authority, His glory. And that, friends, points to the unique glory of Jesus Christ. He's worthy to take the scroll because He shares in the position and in the authority and in the glory of God Himself. Christ is not like the creatures of God's creation. He was not created like the four living beasts. He was not established in His position like the elders. Christ is one with God. He's one with the Creator, one with God the Father, sharing His very glory and nature. And so, what is true of God is true of Jesus of Nazareth. History belongs to the triune God, to the Father and to the Son, who together, through the Spirit, carry out their one unified purpose for all things. Brothers and sisters, this is really the reality that upholds every breath that we take on this earth. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. What is true of God is true of Christ. History, Revelation 5 tells us, belongs to the triune God, to the Father and to the Son, who through the Spirit carry out their one plan for all things. At the same time, you'll notice in verse 5 that the elder says the lion has conquered. Do you see that? This is where Christ's worthiness is seen in His conquest. But that, of course, raises the question, how has the lion conquered? What has He done? And friends, our second reminder answers that question, this time from verses 6-10. to Here we see that the cross of Christ is the center of history. History belongs to the triune God, and the cross of Christ is the center of history. Having heard of this conquering lion, John now turns around to look at him. 
But surprisingly, John does not see a lion. He sees a lamb. Notice verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Friends, this is the hinge point of the chapter and indeed of all of history. This is how the lion conquered by laying down his life as the Lamb of God. This connection is key, brothers and sisters, so we should reflect on this for a moment. John hears of a lion, verse 5, but he sees a lamb, verse 6. Understand, there is no contradiction between those verses. These two images taken together capture the glory of the Gospel. Like a conquering lion, Christ has defeated death, but He has done so by suffering as a sacrificial lamb. To understand Christ, you have to think of both the lion and the lamb. The lion's fierceness is revealed in the lamb's meekness. The lion's power is poured out through the lamb's blood. The lion's victory comes only through what appears to be the lamb's defeat. Friends, this is the beauty and the mystery of the Gospel. Christ defeated death by death. Christ crushed sin by being made sin in Himself. Christ won life for His church by losing His own life in death. In fact, that's the entire point of Revelation 5. It is only through the cross of Christ that God's purpose for history has been fulfilled. It's only through the cross. It's only through the cross that the Lamb's worthiness has been established. It's only through the cross that we see Christ for who He is. The lion conquers as the Lamb slain. And that means, brothers and sisters, that there is no Christianity without the cross of Jesus Christ. You may have noticed that the resurrection is not given the same centrality in this chapter. That's not because the resurrection is unimportant. Don't misunderstand me. Not at all. Without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. So the resurrection is behind the scenes in this entire chapter. But what is on center stage in the spotlight is the Lamb who was slain. There is no Christianity apart from the cross of Christ. Many people in our day find the cross offensive. And I'm not talking about people in the culture. I'm talking about professing believers in the church. Many people find the cross offensive. They find the idea that the Son of God would suffer and shed His blood to be barbaric. There was a book written by a a professing Christian who said the idea that that God would punish His Son is divine child abuse. Many people find the cross to be offensive. Some even claim the idea of God dying because God demands that the Son would die. Some people say that that very idea belittles the goodness of God. If God would make His own Son suffer like this, then how can He be good? Many people find the cross to be offensive. But friends, that offense misses the very heart of Christianity. 
If you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this point. The cross does not belittle the Son of God. It exalts Him. The cross does not question the love of God. The cross displays it. The cross does not undermine God's goodness. It confirms it in the blood of God's own Son. Apart from the slain Lamb of God, there is no Christianity. There is no church. There is no salvation. There is no hope. But through the cross, the Son of God stands in our place, displaying His worthiness and bringing to pass every good promise of God. Not one word of God's promises will fall short. How do you know that, Pastor? The world looks awful. How do you know that not one word of God's promises will fall short? Because the Lamb was slain. And by His blood, He ransomed the people for God. All of God's promises will come to pass, and they will do so because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The lion conquers, praise God, as the lamb who was slain. But still, there's more to say about the cross of Christ. There's more that we should consider here. The glory of the cross is seen not only in the paradox of Christ defeating death by death, the glory of the cross is also seen in what it accomplishes. What, what the cross accomplishes. That's what John describes in verses 8 to 10. The Lamb has stepped forward, He's taken the scroll, and now the inner circle of heaven breaks out into praise. Verse 8 says that the living creatures and the elders fall down and worship the Lamb. If you look back to verse 10 of chapter 4, you'll see that the living creatures and the elders did the same thing before God. So the Lamb receives the same worship as God. Again, Revelation leaves us without any doubt. Jesus of Nazareth is the fully divine Son of God. If you don't believe that, then you don't know God. But the key part of their response comes in verses 9 and 10, where we see what the cross has accomplished. Notice in verse 9 that the elders sing a new song to the Lamb. You see that? They sing a new song. In the Old Testament, God's people would sing a new song anytime God rescued His people in a mighty way. So think of the people of Israel on the shore of the Red Sea, Exodus 15. How did they respond to God redeeming them from Egypt? They sang a new song. Or think about Psalm 96 that Laura read earlier. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Tell of what? Tell of His salvation. From day to day. So right away, the new song in verse 9 tells us that the cross has accomplished salvation with a mighty act of redemption done by God Himself. And then the content of this new song makes this even clearer. What did Christ accomplish at the cross? The new song highlights two things. Redemption and consecration. What are they singing about? They're singing about redemption and consecration. Look at verse 9. It says that by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, that's the language of redemption, of purchase. Before Christ's death, God's people were in bondage to sin. We were slaves to sin with no hope of rescuing ourselves. Indeed, our situation was so hopeless that our only future was the wrath of God. 
But at the cross, Christ delivered His people from that bondage. He accomplished a much greater exodus. Not from earthly slavery like the Israelites in Egypt, but from spiritual eternal slavery to sin and to death. Through His blood, Christ has satisfied God's wrath against our sin. He's taken the wrath on Himself. And by His blood, He has purchased us for God. You cannot understand the cross without this atoning, redemptive work of Christ. What was Jesus doing on the cross? Not ransoming Satan, not ransoming the forces of darkness. He was satisfying God's own wrath and purchasing a people for God. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, praise God. We don't have a spiritual taskmaster. Instead, we have a spiritual father, having been adopted as God's own sons and daughters. And God's family includes people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The blood of Christ transcends all barriers and breaks the chains of sin in every culture across the globe. Satisfying the wrath of God, purchasing a people for Himself, and doing so all across the planet Earth. Friends, that's what we mean when we say that we've been redeemed. Through His blood, God has bought us for Himself. We belong to God. And as glorious as that is, it's still only one side of the cross. Not only has Christ redeemed us, but through His blood, He's also consecrated us. Notice verse 10. What has Christ done with these people? You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Again, the Old Testament is the background here, just like everything else in Revelation. The Old Testament is the background. You may remember in Exodus chapter 19, when God told Israel that they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Israel's job, in other words, was to represent God's rule on earth. As priest kings, Israel was to show the world the light of God's salvation. That was their job. That was what they were commissioned to do. And yet, Israel failed dramatically in that task. In fact, they didn't even make it past Mount Sinai. (laughs) Before the book of Exodus even ends, Israel is already deep in idolatry. And so, this question hangs over the rest of the Old Testament. How will God's rule be seen on the earth? He told Israel to do it. They failed. How will God's rule be seen on the earth? Where will the light of God's truth shine if Israel, like Adam, failed so dramatically in his job? Friends, the answer is the gospel of Christ. That's the point of verse 10. Where Israel failed, Christ succeeds. Through His blood, Christ creates and consecrates a new covenant people for God. The church now serves the world as a royal priesthood in Christ's name. What is our job? To make the light of God's salvation known through the proclamation of the gospel. What are we? A royal priesthood, 1 Peter chapter 2. Making God's rule, God's authority, God's glory, God's truth known through our lives. Our mission is to make God known through the proclamation of Christ's gospel. And friends, that mission is possible only because of the cross of Christ. Christ. 
through His blood, Christ has redeemed us and He has consecrated us to serve the living God. So if you put all of that together, if you put verses 6-10, through redemption and consecration together, there's really only one way to summarize the work of Christ. What has He done? He has founded a new creation. He has accomplished a new creation built upon and through His own blood. By His cross, Christ has brought forth a new people for God, a new covenant people, the church. And this is why the Lamb alone is worthy to open the scroll. Because it is His cross that stands at the center of history, fulfilling all that God has intended. And so that brings us to the final reminder of the passage, which is also the point of application for us from verses 11 to 14. Triune worship is the end of history. Triune worship is the end, the goal of history. The worship that began in verse 8 now expands. In verses 11 and 12, the angels of heaven join the living creatures and the elders in worshiping Christ. Notice verse 12. Notice their song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Friends, we should again appreciate the centrality of the cross in heaven's worship. The angels are not simply praising the Lamb. They're praising the Lamb who was slain. That is eternity's theme, brothers and sisters, For all time, we will worship the Christ who bore our shame at the cross. That's eternity's theme. Then notice verses 13 and 14, how the worship expands again, this time to include every creature in all creation. You heard it in Psalm 96 that Laura read, how all of the creation, including the trees and the rocks and the seas, join together to praise God. Here it's being fulfilled. And that worship is given to whom? To the Lamb. It expands again. We've gone from the inner circle of heaven to the angelic choir of heaven to now the entirety of creation is praising God in Christ. Look at verse 13. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Friends, that's as clear as the Bible can be. God the Father and God the Son equal in nature, equal in glory, receiving together the worship of all things. One of our convictions as a church is that everything exists for the glory of God. Everything we do is meant to display the worth and majesty of God. And here we find the biblical affirmation that that idea is no mere slogan. That conviction is true and right and good. At the end of all things, What we find is the worship of God in Christ. It's the end of all of history. And notice, friends, that everyone in this heavenly scene is filled with joy. The living creatures declare, Amen. The elders fall down in worship. The angels are breaking out in praise. Indeed, every aspect of creation experiences the thrill for which it was made. The praise and glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope as it has been for the church in every age. Notice that John sees this entire scene playing out as though it is occurring even now. He sees it in real time. 
But if you know the rest of Revelation, you know that John will also see much tribulation to come. There are difficult days ahead for the church. So it's striking that before John sees the tribulation of the church, he first sees the worship of heaven. Before John learns of the trials of history, he first sees the end of history. The worship of God in Christ. Why is that? Why does Revelation 5 occur at the beginning of the book rather than the end of the book? The answer, friends, is to assure and encourage the church. It's for our, our assurance and our encouragement. History is not random. Things are not merely evolving in some happenstance way. No, history, according to the Bible, is purposeful. There is an end. And that end is certain. That end is the worship of God in Christ. And therefore, we do not have to fear that God's purposes will be derailed for the church. We do not have to weep in dread that God's plan might not come to pass. And perhaps most importantly, we do not have to cling so tightly to the things of this world, afraid that if we lose them, we lose our lives. We see here in Revelation 5 that the future is sure, the victory is certain. As sure as Christ shed His blood, so also will we join in giving worship to God and to the Lamb. Everything else may crumble and fade, indeed it's likely to do so, but the end remains sure and unchanged. And so, the grand takeaway, the one application point that I'm trying to make for this week is this. Give your life to the worship of Christ. That's the one application. Last week we were called to courage in Revelation 1. This week we're called to worship. Understand, friends, that worship is an act of confident expectation. You don't worship something that you don't believe will last. Worship is an act of confident expectation. When we use our lives to worship Christ, we're telling the world that we believe our future is secure. We're telling the world that our hope rests not on the things of this life, but on the Lamb who was slain and by His blood ransomed people for God. We're giving testimony to the world. And we're also encouraging our own hearts to remain faithful to Christ to the end. You live for what you worship. Or to say it another way, worship binds your heart to the object of your praise. Worship is formative, in other words. So by devoting our lives every moment and every aspect to the worship of God in Christ, we're also binding our hearts by God's grace to the Christ whom we worship. And friends, that's where life is found. To put it plainly, this is what we were made for. This is what we were made to experience, to join in this triune worship and in doing so to find that there is no satisfaction, no joy, no hope greater than Jesus Christ. History belongs to the triune God. The scroll is in God's hand and the lion takes it for himself. The cross of Christ is the center of history. The lion conquered as the lamb slain. And triune worship is the end of history. All creation joins together to praise God in Christ. And so may we join them as well, brothers and sisters, to the glory of the Lamb who was slain. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we confess that our hearts are so easily taken up with lesser things. 
Even now, Father, as we've been listening to Your Word, we've been thinking of scores of other things that we need to do, that we need to accomplish, that we need to focus on, that we need to change. We are so easily taken up with other things. And so we pray, God, we plead with You that You would use this chapter in the Bible to pull back the fog of this life that so often settles in over our vision and to help us see Christ and then seeing Him to live for Him. Father, make us a confident, joyful, worshipful people. All around us, Father, the world is shaking and trembling. We beg You that as Your church, we would not join in the trembling, but that we would stand firm and sure and certain. And the only sure ground, Father, is the cross of Christ. Make us be known as a people who love Christ and Him crucified. Not for ourselves, but for the glory of God and for the good of those who are yet to trust in the Lord Jesus. We pray in His name and for His sake. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we close this morning?